I will tell you about dreams that I hate. You want to hear them? Dreams that I hate. I hate dreams that you can't see what you're looking at. Have you ever had these? These are dreams. I don't, I don't have dreams that like weird stuff's happening a lot, but I have dreams where I can't see what I'm looking at. I can only kind of see on the periphery. Okay, and so like if I want, and it's so frustrating. And so I'm, I'm like, I can't, I just can't see it. I only see like, I only see peripherally all the way around. I hate those dreams. And dreams like that are so nice to wake up from because I can open my eyes and go, oh, that's what it's like to see. But I do, I have these dreams and they're kind of recurring where the thing I'm looking at, I'm not able to actually see. If I want to see it, I have to, have to kind of look over here and then I can see Eli over there in the corner. Like it's just, it's just a weird dream that I have. They're the worst. They're the worst dreams to have. They're so incredibly frustrating for me. Because usually in the dream, there's a task. There's something I'm supposed to be doing. And I can't see what I'm supposed to be doing. And it's very difficult. I mean, try to do anything only using your peripheral vision. You don't get a lot accomplished. And it never fixes until I wake up. And then I can see and I feel good about myself again. But honestly, even though that's a dream and I can wake up from it, it's much more frustrating in real life to not be able to see what you're looking at. Or maybe even, this might even be worse, to not be aware that you can't see, that you don't know what you're looking at. People all over the world, even though it may not feel as such in America because America is bizarre, but the large majority of the globe is theistic. They believe in God. Right? The, a minority doesn't believe in a God of some type. Right? So there are far fewer atheists than there are theists. Now you might not think about that when you consider your workplace or the friends you come across or like they're more agnostic. Globally, there are very few agnostics. People are rather decided that there is a God. It is since forever been the way people put life together. It's just the way it goes. However, what they're looking at may not be God. Maybe they think they can see and they can't, and it's just become the way in which they've learned to operate. And they live life on the edges because of it, because they actually don't know clearly who God is. Uh, Some, even though we might say there's parts of God that are mysterious, Our God himself is not a mystery. And what I mean by that is he's knowable. He's knowable. That's one of the greatest things about Christianity is that you can say, no, you can know God. You can can know God. Uh, God can know you in a saving sense. And you can be aware of him and his attributes. He's not just confusing. And he's not many where you go, oh, well, that counts too, and that counts too, like some faith systems, and that's God, and that's God, and that's God, and that's God, and we'll take that God, and we'll take that God too. So in Christianity, God is knowable. And this is the great thing for anybody here this morning. Now, I get it. When I say anybody here this morning, I'm always assuming that I'm talking to somebody in the room who doesn't know the Lord. I know most of you guys. And... That I'm still going to take that assumption because there might be people listening or watching online who just go, well, no, I think I, I know God. But 
this is where we are in the Gospel of John. I was going to preach just John 1.14 on Christmas Eve, but I just went with light and darkness instead and saved John 1.14 to 18 for today. Right? The remnant gets, gets the best. Because Jesus shows us God, the Father. Jesus shows us through the incarnation The becoming man, the son, becoming man, shows us God so that we can actually see clearly. I mean, this is one of the greatest things about our faith is you can go to somebody who doesn't know the Lord and go, no, you can know God. You can comprehend him in the ways that he has revealed. Though he is incomprehensible in total, you can still know him And you can still be saved by him. And you can follow him. And you can ask of him things. And he reveals them through his word. And you can can walk with him. That he's not confusing. That he is clarifying. And this is what Jesus does. Jesus, the son, the one who is incarnate. The word made flesh. Reveals to us God will be in John 1, 14 through 18. The great thing about this passage is not just that the passage itself is great. It's the numerous uh, allusions to the Exodus and the tabernacle that exists even in this. Like There's stuff going on in the Exodus and the tabernacle and Moses and Moses' desire to see God that all in John 1, 14 through 18 begin to show us. All these illusions that begin to happen. So let's just start with the passage. It goes like this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, that would be the the Baptist one, not the denomination, bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his, that would be the word or Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Okay? Okay? This is what we'll see today. First, we'll just see the Word made flesh, the one who's always been. He is the giver of grace. And just going back to 114, 14 and 18, kind of tie themselves together, verse 14 and verse 18, that if you want to see God, you must see Jesus. If you want to see God, you must see Jesus. You can't not see Jesus first. If you want to see God, you have to see Jesus. So we'll start with John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, the first idea that we might ask is, why do you need a Savior in the flesh? Why does that matter? Why does the God have to become man? Why can't God just save as God? Because God's powerful. So God, why can't God just save? Well, this is where sometimes you can go back into history and find people who say it better versus just me. <clears throat> so there was one such work written. It was called On the Incarnation by Athanasius. And he writes this. He, the mighty one, 
the artificer of all, himself prepared this body in the Virgin as a temple for himself and took it for his very own as the instrument through which he was known and in which he dwelt. Thus, taking a body like our own, because all our bodies were liable to the corruption of death, we're all going to die, he surrendered his body to death instead of all, that would be all people, and offered it to the Father. This he did out of sheer love for us, so that in his death all might die, and the law of death thereby be abolished, because having fulfilled in his body that for which it was appointed, it was therefore after voided of its power for men. So your sin that resides in you, when the sinless one dies through faith in Christ, you can have your body resurrected, your life made new. Sin does not have power over you. This he did that he might turn again to incorruption men who had turned back to corruption. That would be through the fall. So he did this to turn us to him, though men turn toward corruption, though we live for ourselves, though we sin. And make them, that would be those men, alive through death by the appropriation of his body and by the grace of his resurrection. Thus, he would make death to disappear from them as utterly as straw from fire. It's a cool little phrasing. I mean, you kind of go, that's not the way we, we speak. But what does he essentially say is, God became man so that sin might be forgiven. And man, who is fully sinful, <laughs> might have a way to be with God again. That the word had to become flesh so that salvation could be fully realized. Because it was man who sinned. So the sinless one dies in a body, incarnate, so that through his work we are free. The word becomes flesh. Incarnation is glorious. And honestly, and this is one of the most difficult things, if you go back into historical heresies, and a heresy is not, I've said this before, we have to kind of latch on, a heresy is something that if believing is not Christian, right? Like you might have a different interpretation on when something happened or what year it happened, or you might go, well, I, I kind of look at it this way, not that way, or I see this and not that. But a heresy is such that if you actually believed it, Believing it is impossible to then hold to and still be Christian. And so there are very few, very few things that actually constitute a heretical belief. There might be heterodox, things that are just obscure. Very few things are actually heretical, but very many of those few have to do with Jesus himself. <clears throat> because it is the issue of the incarnation that makes people wonky. How are you 100% God and 100% man? No one can be 200% of anything. And so people go, oh, well, he had a body, he appeared like a man. <clears throat> They'll say something like that. He appeared like a man, <clears throat> but he really wasn't. Or the two natures stayed separate. Kind of like uh, they say God and a bod, which is a terrible way to say it because it's inaccurate. Um, because it's like, like he had this, like, like Edgar, the skin suit in Men in Black 2, I think it was, maybe Men in Black 1, you know, like he just kind of put on this suit as God, and that's what he does? No. No, the son was fully God and fully man, and hear this, the son is still fully God and fully man. 
It wasn't just something that existed for a moment, for 30 years, and then after ascension, done. He's good now. He can take his suit off. No. God became man. The Son of God is man, not was, is. And that matters. That matters for us. He returns. He doesn't return as a, as a mist. He returns as a conqueror, right? Riding on a horse, like ready to abolish sin, Satan, and death for all time. Not a cloud. He comes on the clouds. Totally different. And so we have to just launch in to go, the word became flesh. Yes, yes. How do you comprehend the hypostatic union as it is called? As well as you can and as feeble as your mind is. That's how you do it. That's how you do it. But never, never hedge. Somebody goes, well, how does it work? You go, I don't know, but I'm not God. I don't have to worry about it. Like, that's his thing to worry about. It's not mine. Well, like, you know, some people try to go, well, when he was like this, he was like a man. And when he was like this, he was God. Well, clearly here he was acting like God, like he had a switch. I'm going to switch my God switch on, and now I'm going to act like God. But when it comes time to be a man, I'm going to switch my man switch on. Like, no, he was always both, always both, as he ministered here on this earth. And so when you read about Jesus, you're always reading about the God-man, right? You're always reading about the God-man. You're not reading about God who's acting like a man for a moment and then acting like God again. Just, just, just put that in your heads because it's always, heresy is always about Jesus. A lot of the stuff, God is Father, we can kind of go, cool, okay, I get it. Creator of everything, cool, God creates everything, I can do that, right? But once you start to go to Jesus is God and Jesus was man, that's where even other faith systems go, nope, I'm cool with Jesus up to that point. Up to that point. I'm even cool with virgin birth long as he's not God, right? So, so we have to go, like the very fact that John 1.14 exists, and we can see this, the incarnation happened. That is the dividing point for many faiths on who Jesus is. They go, nope, nope, I'm cool with Jesus, the teacher, I'm cool with Jesus, the idea, I'm cool that I could say that a man named Jesus walked around and many teachings were ascribed to him, but he was not God. I heard a reluctant uh, kind of atheist say it this way about Jesus, which was like, I, if, if I go to say he's real, which I appreciated the intellectual honesty, if I go to say he's real, then that means the things he said were real. And I don't know if I'm okay with the things he said being real. Like, like I, can't, I can't go there. I can't go, I can't, I, I don't want to go there. Because... The things he said carried weight and have implications. They do, right? Like, so most people's fundamental opposition is not to God the idea, but it's to God the man, Christ Jesus. And the message of salvation that he brings and the death that he died and the resurrection that he resurrected and the life that he gives to us by grace through faith. Okay. Well, that was 114a. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Back in the day when there weren't cameras and I was better at preaching, I would use the stage more. Uh, but I'll just stay right here. I remember when Rich Halloran preached and he kind of came over here for a second and the camera people were like, oh, don't move too far. So we'll just stay right here. 
I kind of want to move a little bit. I'm feeling movie, but that idea of dwelt is pretty cool. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It actually harkens back, because we're at Christmas time, we have to say hark. Harkens back to God and the tabernacle. Okay, we've actually preached on this previously, recently even. But God and the tabernacle, okay? That the tabernacle was a, a tent, but it was a dwelling place for God. And the idea that John, the apostle, is picking up on is that the word became flesh and tented, made a tent, encamped here with us, which pushes you backwards to the book of Exodus, where you read something like this. And let them make a sanctuary that I I may dwell in their midst. That God chose in the Exodus to dwell with his people through the tabernacle, Sometimes tabernacle and tent of meeting get combined. And in the temple, after the kingdom is initiated in the land, because remember, Exodus is transient. And even as it's transient, once they get into the land, there's still worship at the tabernacle. But the tabernacle kind of falls off the map, kind of goes to Shiloh and then just disappears for a while. And we don't really know what happened to it. Then the temple shows up and it's temple for a long time. But God chooses to reveal his presence, make his presence known through a tabernacle, through a tent. At the end of Exodus, chapter 40, verse 34, we read this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's glory which you could put as his weight or his presence, his heaviness was there at the tabernacle. So in chapter 25, he's saying, build for me this place that I might dwell. In chapter 40, God dwells there. <clears throat> and any Israelite would know that if you want to be a part of worship or you want to see people who meet with God, because no Israelite, not any Israelite could go to the tabernacle and could minister in the tabernacle, that God had Levites, who were a part of the ministry, the worshiping life of Israel. But God chose to dwell in a tabernacle. His presence was known there. John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Jewish mind already recognized God's dwelling in the tabernacle, and so when that was then moved, in a sense, the idea was moved to, and the word became flesh and dwelt, Right? It was, oh, okay, so this is now God's presence. God's presence isn't a tent, it's a person. The person is Jesus. If I want to know God, I have to know Jesus. If I want to experience God's presence, I need to know Jesus. If I want to interact with God, I have to interact with Jesus. Right? The, the link is clear for John. It's clear for a Jewish mind to go, oh, okay. Now, it might be rejected, as we saw last week, that his own people rejected him. But the link is there. The link is there. Then we have another. Remember how, how the, the, the passage, the whole prologue is word, and then John, and it feels like this abrupt move? Well, we get John again here in verse 15, and all John does is do what he was supposed to do. John bore witness, there's that word again about him, 
And he cried out and said, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now what this means is, John had a ministry, we're going to read about that as we get into the new year, we're going to see John's ministry and what he did, but John had a ministry preparing the way for the Messiah, preparing the way for the Messiah, and so John is going, this is the one I spoke about, as Jesus then came into ministry, he was baptized by John the Baptist, he was baptizing others, but he had a ministry that was proclaiming and preparing the way for the Messiah. And when John sees him, he goes, this is the one. I said, the one who comes after me is better than me because he was before me. Which speaks to that pre-incarnate that we saw at the beginning of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was there in the beginning with God. So John sees Jesus and says... He's the one I spoke about. When you get into his ministry next week, when we see this 19 and following, he's going to say again, I saw the Spirit descend on him. And so he's recognizing and doing what a good evangelist does, which is to say, it's him, it's him, it's him, it's him, it's him. He is better. He is superior. You need to listen to him. He lost disciples to Jesus, and he wasn't mad about it because it wasn't church hopping. He was just like, go. He was there, and he said, please, just go to him. Now, it's funny, not all of John's disciples go. Some go. Some go. They follow after him. It's cool, too. I can't wait to get there because you get to see how the disciples evangelize. And here's what they do. I'm going to give you a little teaser. Here's what they do. They go, hey, you should come see Jesus. That's literally it. Like, you should come see Jesus. And when they walk up to Jesus and they're like, hey, what do you, you know, where, where do you live? Where are you staying? Like, that's their question they ask. Where are you staying? Because they're probably too squirrely to ask a real question. You know how it happens sometimes? Uh, where are you staying? But, but, but his question to them is, what do you want? What do you want? And John has so many of these statements in his gospel that are like, they mean one thing. And then, like, if you just think about it, you're like, oh, dang. <laughs> right? Because can't you just hear the Son of God say to us, what do you want? Like, that's the question we have to, like, who is Jesus? And he goes, come, come and see. Right? Come on, let's go. Like, that's that call to discipleship. And it's funny, because as you kind of go, they're like, all right, and they go with Jesus, and then like two years later, like, oh, is this what that meant? Because that's what we do too, right? Man, Jesus is awesome. And then you start reading more, and you're in fellowship, and you're in a church family, and you understand more, and you go, oh, that too? <laughs> and that? And he's that? And he's that? It's just, it's great. I, we could spend forever in it, but we can't. But we will, but we can't. So John the Baptist is pointing to Jesus, saying he's pre-incarnate. He's recognizing the superior nature of Jesus. And so we have this parenthetical comment that John the writer is giving us about John the Baptist. And then we move back to the ministry of the word, verses 16 and 17. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through, through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So, two things are happening here. First, grace comes through Jesus, and it's a grace we wouldn't have known otherwise. So, the word becomes flesh, and through him... Right? There's the parenthetical comment, and then through him, we have all received grace upon grace. Now, this is actually an interesting phrasing. Not every translation is going to say grace upon grace. Not every interpreter is going to say grace upon grace. 
uh, because they will even say grace as, sometimes some will say something like grace as opposed to grace, which is bizarre, isn't it? It's a weird way to put it. Grace, anti-grace, right? Like the preposition is actually against. It doesn't usually mean upon. Okay, so why might that be? Against or instead of, like grace instead of grace? Well, that doesn't make any sense either because we really like like the grace upon grace. Like that's, that's cool sounding. It's bubbly. It feels good. We get it. That's what Jesus does. But here's the thing that I love is if it were grace instead of grace, this is what it would mean. Grace instead of grace. It would mean, verse 17, <laughs> that the law was one kind of grace revealing how we were to interact with God. And Jesus was better grace. (laughs) That would be grace instead of grace. We receive his grace, his goodness, his mercy, his kindness. We receive that instead of law. And law didn't save. So that's if you kind of take it grace instead of. Or it can mean grace upon. Which is like just abounding and abundant grace. And this is the great thing. This is the great thing. Both are true. Both are true. In Christ, you get more grace than you could ever handle or even comprehend. And that grace is better than the law. Even though the law itself was a grace given by God to help his people know him, to see them recognize their need, to give them a way to interact with him, but still in Christ, it is superior to anything else. He is superior. Christ's revelation of God for us and our salvation is far superior to what was revealed in the law. We see God more clearly. And that is a grace that is in abundance for us. And this is, I, I would just say, I remember one time, you know, you're making, you're, you're making value statements for churches and I was in this meeting and I was probably in four of them in you know, about 10 years. We're trying to go, what do we stand for? What do we know? What do we mean? Like, like who are we? And you're always trying to define your values, which are different. I, I, I like core values. I'm totally cool with them. And we're all you know, edgy, so we're trying to be, you know, the young guys on staff are trying to come up with cool terms. Uh, and we're like, I don't know, like radical generosity, you know, uh, like crazy-hearted service, because you always have to have an adjective in front of it to make it sound cooler, often hyphenated. This is kind of our thing. And, um, you know, smarter and cooler heads prevailed and, and led with, if we're not marked by grace, what are we marked by? Like, that needs to be what leads, because that's what matters. Like 10 years ago, maybe 11, I was sitting with a pastor who was also a mentor of mine for some years, and we were at a Barnes and Noble, because I saw him there, and I was sitting with him. And sometimes, you know, you have to be interpreted, like one generation has to be an interpreter for the next. And you go, hey, what what do you kids mean when you say this thing? Because it was probably in the past 10 to 15 years, go with me here, the phrase um, gospel-centered became m- more abundant in how people spoke. That like, you know, everything has to be like gospel-centered, which was, it sometimes felt like window dressing. You're like, okay, how, right? Like, how does that happen? It's like, oh, it's just about Jesus. I'm okay, what about Jesus? Like, do we all wear beards? Do we all, like, what, what do you mean 
gospel-centered. And so I'm sitting with Gary, and Gary goes, what do you guys mean when you say gospel-centered? Because he'd have these young pastors, he was always mentoring young pastors, and there was kind of this like emergence of people being like, we're not gospel-centered enough, we're not this enough, we're not that enough. He's like, what I think you mean is grace. You've just, you've just given it, a, you've given it a, new, a new term, but you just mean gracious. Like remembering that God is gracious towards sinners. Isn't that what you mean? And I was like, well, you know what? You've been in ministry a lot longer. That sounds pretty good to me. But it was funny because it was his ministry peer that I'm in the values conversation with, who was my boss at the time, and goes, it's grace. And I was like, ah, okay. Right? Every generation is trying to come up with their, their terminology to understand who Jesus is and how that affects a people. But through Jesus, we receive grace. And grace is one of the most angering things until you need it. Until you need it. It's angering because we love credit. We love credit. We love being able to say, I did this, I made this, I earned this. When you get paid, if it's every two weeks or every month or when you make sales or when your retirement plan pays out, whatever it is, when you get income from something you've worked for, you don't go, oh man, I didn't deserve that. Usually you're like, I deserve more than that, but I'll take it. Right? Like that's how we think. Right? I've worked harder. I've worked hard. Like Working hard is good. And getting paid is good for hard work. And if you're an employer and you can pay, pay, pay people, pay them well, that's good. It's good because we recognize work is good. Work is not a condition of sin. Hard work, frustrating work is. That's, that's a result of sin. But work existed in the garden. You'll never not be working. You'll never not be working. So we understand effort. Effort's good. I want to get paid for my effort. So we live in a world that, that screams effort. And we live lives that want to get credit for effort. And then when it comes to our spiritual state, our effort is meaningless. And that's hard to comprehend because just like the incarnation is the intrusion of God into this world so we might see him, grace is the same. Often we have frustration with grace, like I said, until we need it. And then when we need it, we're like, I don't deserve it, God, please have it. <laughs> That's what we do. I need grace. I need grace. Well, here's what we have to remember. Through Christ, we get it. We get sins forgiven. We get life in him. A salvation we didn't earn and can't. Very often, we have this phrase that we use. I've heard it many times. I use it many times wherever interacting together. That God saves me. We're very robust in, uh, in trusting in God's sovereignty when he saves me. And then we kind of slip into, but I keep me. God saves me and I'm so great, but I keep me there. I must keep me there. He did the hard work of getting me in. I do the easier work of keeping me in. That's not grace. That's not grace. 
if you somehow sustain your salvation, you're, you're, you're not saved. <laughs> because salvation is grace upon grace. In Christ is grace upon grace. Being able to be here is grace upon grace. Reading his word and hearing it and understanding it and, and serving him and worshiping him because of it is grace upon grace. Having our sins forgiven is grace upon grace. Not law upon law, frustration upon frustration, anger upon anger, work upon work. That's why you hear the call of Jesus, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And what is he saying there? I have a totally different way I operate. I have a totally different way I work. I have a totally different rhythm in which I want you to live. And the one the world is going to give you makes you weary and tired, burned out, angry, frustrated, and exhausted because you can't keep up with the world's demands. In ourselves, we can't keep up with God's demands either. But because of the work of the Son, we can. Because His satisfaction is given to us. So from His fullness, it comes from Jesus, we receive grace upon grace. Abounding, unending, always satisfying grace. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth comes through Jesus. It's hard for me to comprehend that because I read truth as things I, they're, they're statements that I look at and I comprehend. Right? Like I, I go, okay, hey, this is, you know, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's an idea and I can, I can hold on to that idea. It's more difficult for us to associate truth with Jesus. He is truth. That's what he calls himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Grace and truth come through Jesus. Both are necessary, aren't they? I need to know what is true. What is true is not always good, is it? What is true is actually condemning. But what does Jesus bring? Along with truth, he brings what? Grace. And we receive both in him. And as we walk with him, we comprehend it more and better. And then we end with verse 18, and it brings us back to where we started in verse 14, which is, to see God, you must see Jesus. No one, no one has ever seen God. Like I was talking about in Colossians, just be the Father. No one's ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. He has made Him known. Not a life where you can't see what's in front of you. All you want to see is God. All you want to know is if you're right. And this is what the world will scream at you, right? If you want to know you're right, do more good than bad. Do more good than bad. If you do more good than bad, you're going to be okay. If you're better than most people you know, you're going to be okay doesn't work it doesn't work no one has seen God 
Like I said, most people in this world believe in God, but no one, most of them don't know him. They believe the idea of God, but they don't know the person of God. I didn't. You didn't. There was a prayer prayed this morning as we were in our circle, and it was, we, can, we were praying for the kids who are in the kids' ministry right now. Lord, we can, we can bring them to you. We can, we can teach them to teach you or teach them you. We can teach them about you. We can show them your goodness, but we cannot save them. We can, we can show them you. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He's made him known. Jesus, the Son, makes the Father known. There's an interesting interaction that is had in the book of Exodus. Moses, <clears throat> I think he's getting to a spot where he feels like he and God are bros, where he can make a demand. They've been together for a little while, and he just needs a little more understanding of who God is, which is fair, right? When you think about a relationship you might have with somebody, you go, hey, we've been, we've been together a while. I need to know you better. <clears throat> I need to know you better. Moses has this interaction with the Lord. He's become, uh, I, I guess, curious about you know, more of him. and wants to know more of him. <clears throat> and so he says this to the Lord in Exodus chapter 33. He says, please show me your glory. <clears throat> show it to me. Let me see you. Let me see you. And there's a reply, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But we read and continue to read that the Lord hides Moses' face and he can only see him from one spot. And he proclaims how he is merciful and just in that moment. Here's the crazy thing. It's really two crazy things. We'll go through both of them. <clears throat> At the transfiguration, which is a time that Jesus becomes more glorious and revealed. You know who's there at the transfiguration talking with Jesus while the disciples are at a distance? One of the two people is Moses. Moses is there. And Elijah's there. Now, the sub-cool thing about Moses being there is that Moses couldn't get into the land. He physically died before the Israelites came into the land. But in that moment, where is he? He's there. And what is he doing but having a conversation with the Son of God face-to-face? Huh. Huh. So that's just cool thing number one. Here's cool thing number two. You get a better glimpse of God than Exodus 33 Moses does. You get a clearer picture of God than the Old Testament saints do. There has been more revealed about God as time had gone on and preserved about God for us to see in John or through Luke, the Apostle Paul, author of the Hebrews. We get to see More of God. The Son 
comes into this world and shows us God. And these are things that the saints before that time just longed to look into, but couldn't see like you could see. It's glorious. It's glorious. If you want to see God, you have to look at Jesus. That's how the scales fall off. That's how you see clearly. Now, I want to respond to the thought I would have. So I'm going to argue with myself for a second, okay? I would say something like this if I'm sitting in your seat. That sounds incredibly arrogant to say you have the right understanding. The right understanding. Other people would say that they have the right understanding. Other faith systems would say they have the right understanding. Who are you to say you have the right understanding? Well, fundamentally, I'll say two things. Fundamentally, any system of belief is built on faith. Right? It's built on things not seen. So we have to recognize any, even, even atheism is built on faith, right? Like, like agnosticism is built on faith. They're believing things about the world and how it works. And that leads them to certain conclusions. So every system is built on faith. So I can never convince somebody of anything. I can't do it. Secondly, though, and I would just say this based observationally, there is no system of belief that is as upside down as Christianity. Not one. Not one. Now again, I know you think I'm arguing just from like something that wouldn't, you would go, ah, circular. But faith systems very often look like they're creators. And what those creators wanted to have exist. (laughs) And so what do they often have in them? Some element of works. Do more, be more, pray more, act more, serve more, give more, share, do, do more. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Secondly, in that idea, most systems of belief are about us getting up to God. Us getting up to God. There is one that is God coming down to us. The incarnation itself is evidence that this is something otherworldly. If I were to add a third, I would simply say this. And this is true for many of you. Unless you were raised in a Christian home and you don't have a time you didn't believe it. But when you see people converted, you just go, couldn't make that happen. I couldn't make that happen. I couldn't make you move from works-based, I'm going to do it, I've earned it, to I have no contribution that is worth my salvation. That in and of itself is an act of God. So I will, I will never be able to prove to you that this is the right way. But the Spirit can. 
And that's enough. That's enough. You can investigate it. You can compare it. You can argue it. You can reason it. You can think about it. You can adjust it. You can push and pull and prod. You can do all of those things. But still, it is an act of God. It is an act of God. If anything, I would just encourage you. I would just encourage you, if you're a skeptic or you're confused or you would just like to know the Lord better, just read about him. Read about him. See what happens. I mean, I, I, I literally watch people sometimes changed by just hearing about Jesus. Changed. I didn't do it. They just start looking at him. And as they look at him, they go, who is this guy? I'm like, I know. It's crazy. If you need a place to start, here's what I'd encourage you to do. Grab a reading plan. Seriously, grab a reading plan. I mean, if you want the challenge, I'll just go, I dare you to grab a reading plan. I'll just do something like that. Five days a week, you'll be in the New Testament. You'll be reading about Jesus. Every three months, you start a gospel. You read again and read again and read again. If you don't want to memorize, memorize the, the passages we have. You actually start with John 1, 1 through 5. Right there, the first five verses of John. Just read it. Give attention to it. See what happens. See what happens. I can say this, though. From his fullness, we receive grace upon grace. And it is good. It is good. And it is transformative. Even on the last Sunday of the year. Even in between whatever gauntlet you have been running. It is good. And you can't make it up. Because God is too gracious to be hidden. We can know him through Christ, so let's pray.